get out your sermon outline so you can follow along as we are in Genesis chapter 15. Chapter 18, excuse me, verses 1 through 15. Open your Bibles to Genesis 18. I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. Please listen carefully as this is the Word of God. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour. That's about six gallons. Three seahs of fine flour and knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, as always, for giving us your word, for making us your people. Thank you for this church family. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and minds to understand as we study these things which you have authored. Apply them to us, proving in us that your word is profitable for reproof and correction and training and righteousness. Change us and shape us by your truth so that we may know you better and love you more deeply and pursue you more diligently. For this, we need your grace and we need your spirit. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we've all been there before. It's 6 p.m., and you have special guests arriving for dinner in 30 minutes or less. And the house isn't ready, and the food isn't coming off quite as you had hoped. 
In addition, you're, you're running around the place like a field marshal issuing orders at the speed of light. Get that stuff off the floor, put your shoes away, get dressed. Somebody check the bathroom, put the dog outside. Somebody check the rolls in the oven, you know, that sort of thing. And we work our tails off so that we can pretend the house always looks that way. Now, I know for some of you, the house really does always look that way. And for you, we have a counselor on staff. (laughs) Just saying. But the reason for all this work, all this cleaning, and all this fuss is because these guests, whoever they are, are people that are important to you for any number of reasons. There are some people that when they show up, we want everything to be just so. Partially because we want them to feel that Uh, We're glad that they're here, that they've come to visit, and partially we just want to make a good impression. And there are just some guests that we really roll out the red carpet for. And in the passage before us this morning, Abraham is visited by uh, just these kinds of guests, only he has no idea that they're coming. One moment he's taking it easy, careful not to busy himself too much in the extreme heat, And the next moment, he's up and running, trying to look after these very important visitors that have appeared so mysteriously at the door to his tent. And that story and what it's all about is the focus of our study this morning. Now, if you've been following along as we've worked our way through the book of Genesis, you'll know that we've been looking at the life of Abram since the beginning of the summer, starting back in uh, chapter 12 of Genesis. And the story thus far is that Abram and his family have been set apart to receive the blessing of God, a blessing that is, in fact, part of a fulfillment of a promise that was made all the way back in Genesis 3.15, which was probably February for us. And what was that promise? Simply that through Eve's one of Eve's descendants, God would eventually bring a deliverer who would crush Satan and undo all the brokenness that was introduced into the world by sin and death. And so from that point, we trace this line of blessing through uh, Seth and Noah and Shem and finally to the person of Abram. And now we've watched Abram's life for more than 20 years as he's relocated his family from a place called Ur to the land that will one day be given to his descendants, which is known throughout the Bible as the promised land. And while he's wandered in this land, he's waited. He's waited for God to fulfill a specific promise to give him a legitimate heir so that the line of blessing could continue and the promise of Genesis 3.15 could keep moving towards its fulfillment. And throughout everything, Abraham has shown himself to be faithful. As you learned last week, his name was changed from Abram to Abraham and, and he's been faithful most of the time. He certainly trusts God, even if his fears and doubts get the best of him sometime. But the doubts and lack of trust have been significant. And they've taken their toll and made things more complicated and more difficult than they might have been otherwise. And still, God has remained faithful to his promises, even when Abraham and Sarah have been faithless. Indeed, God seems to be very aware of and patient with their weaknesses and shortcomings, doubts and fears, and outright sin. 
He seems to be well aware of how hard it has been for them to keep believing and trusting. And so as time has gone by, and with each successive reassurance of the promise, it seems that God has taken extra measures to help them keep trusting and believing. And so to his repeated words of promise and faithfulness, he has linked different visual reminders. He's told them that your offspring will be like all the stars in the sky or all the sand of the seashore or all the dust of the earth, saying their descendants are going to be numerous. And furthermore, he's condescended to take part in this covenant-keeping ritual involving animals and sacrifice that we saw in chapter 15, taking all the responsibility upon himself in the process. And still further, he has given Abraham the bodily sign of circumcision. And now after all of this, he takes one more step to add a further element of assurance to all that he said. He drops in for a visit. And that's where we start off in Genesis 18, by witnessing God's intimate meal with Abraham. God's intimate meal with Abraham. Go back to verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, Three seahs of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So we have this unprecedented gesture of friendship. God personally and unexpectedly comes to Abraham. To be sure, he's spoken to Abraham before, and he's appeared in the form of a theophany, which was the fire pot and torch in Genesis 15. But here we have God visiting his people in a much more intimate and personal manner. In fact, this is the most intimate and personal approach of God that we've seen since we left the garden. So here we see him for the first time taking on human form. So why does God approach Abraham in this manner? Well, it seems to me that he assumes this form so that he can draw near to Abraham without Abraham being completely freaked out by his presence. That's a theological term. Um, He takes on this human form to demonstrate just how far he's willing to go to relate meaningfully to Abraham. So God comes for a visit. And all of this, I think reminds us that this whole thing for God isn't just some grand experiment in creation, sovereignty, justice, and mercy. It's all personal. God is personally invested in what's happening here. 
He's not just moving pieces around on a chessboard. He's not some grand puppet master working with lifeless marionettes that mean nothing to him and have no chance for a real relationship. This is the one living and true God who's made creatures in his image and invested them with personality in the truest sense that he might have a real relationship with them and that he might be loved and love them. God is not just Abraham's creator and Lord. As the New Testament writer James tells us in James 2, the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Four times in the scriptures, Abraham is called a friend of God. And so God makes this amazing a gesture of concern and friendship and comes personally and in human form to see Abraham and Sarah. Now, the appearance of these three strangers, it's going to become clear later on that this is God and two angels. The uh, But the appearance of these three at Abraham's tent, as the text tells us, is quite sudden. When I say God, we're probably, the text doesn't tell us, probably we're talking about the pre-incarnate Christ here as he takes on human form. But the impression that we're given in the text is not so much that they you know, approached and you watched them come uh, up from a long distance away, but that they simply showed up. One moment they weren't there, the next moment they were. And all of it seems to have caught Abraham off guard. We're told he's at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, probably nodding off in and out of sleep, trying not to exert himself any more than necessary, much like some of you right now. At any rate, Abraham is resting. And these men come at a pretty inopportune time. They come right in the middle of what we would call siesta, or his early afternoon nap. And he springs to his feet, he invites them in, and says, let me give you a little bit of bread. Specifically says, a morsel of bread. And then he goes and slays the fatted calf and has his wife cooking and the servants cooking. And this little piece of bread uh, ends up bringing out to his visitors is this sumptuous feast. And he shows them great honor and great hospitality. He treats their visit as if it's the very providence of God, which it is. It shows tremendous hospitality. This is actually very typical of Bedouin hospitality, of desert hospitality. It's a royal welcome at an inconvenient time. And the assurance to these visitors is that it's an honor to be present with them. He calls this lavish meal a morsel of bread in verse 5. And we see that he stands, Abraham stands, while these men eat. And all of this shows the type of hospitality that's so common in the East. But as we see this, and as we know who one of these men is, we're struck with the appropriateness of all the fuss of Abraham's hospitality. The New Testament shows us there's more than a coincidence here. There's lots of verses that speak to the subject of hospitality. Let me remind you of a few. Hebrews 13.2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That's certainly the case with Abraham in his tent that day. 
And again, there's Jesus' words in Matthew 25, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And here the hospitality of Abraham is literally extended to God. And it's a reminder to us how our hospitality as believers ought to be extended to others. Now, there are people here among us who that comes very naturally. They're just good at hospitality. There's others of us that that's a chore. That's hard. And yet the Bible doesn't let anybody off the hook. We're commanded to practice hospitality. Romans 12 tells us to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's a command of Scripture. It's a non-negotiable imperative given to every person who claims the name of Christ. If we're Christians, we're to practice showing love to those who are strangers to us. It's non-optional. It's a command of God. First Peter 4 commands us to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. You know, and that's crucial because it's all too easy to open your home only to those who are your closest friends. And Peter isn't talking about having your pals over for game night. That's fine, you can do that. But Peter isn't thinking along those lines. He's thinking about those times when you show kindness to people you don't know very well. But now here in Genesis 18, without warning, these three men are standing before Abraham. And Abraham suddenly becomes aware of this, jumps to his feet, and runs towards them which is saying something for a hundred-year-old guy. He bows before them, says, verse 3, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now, it's a fair question to ask. At what point in the story does Abraham become aware of the true identity of his visitors? Because when you get to the end of chapter 18, it's very clear that Abraham knows But here at the beginning, opinions are divided as to how sure he is of the identity of these three men as they suddenly appear to him. He does call one of them Lord, but the word is Adonai, and it may just be a title of respect. It would have been used to, uh, to address any important person who was visiting. On the other hand, he says, if I have found favor in your sight, The word for your in the Hebrew is singular. In other words, he's not addressing all of them, but he's distinguished one of them apart from the other two. Now, we don't know what distinguished one apart from the others, but apparently there was something about one of them, his manner, his appearance, we don't know, something that signaled to Abraham that one of them is clearly in charge and therefore the one to be addressed. (coughs) So he may have realized it was the Lord. But at any rate, Abraham runs to these three men, perhaps suspecting this may be the Lord, but at the very least thinking they're people of importance. And he pleads with them to grant him the privilege of serving them and enjoying his hospitality. They agree to this, and Abraham goes about rolling out the red carpet. He has water brought for their feet to be washed. He gets Sarah, who hasn't seen or met these visitors yet, to start the task of making cakes. He runs off to the herd to find a choice young calf. He gives it to someone to prepare. And when everything's ready, if you think about this, this, you know, was not like 15 minutes later. They had to make the cake and prepare the calf. This takes time. 
and it's all ready, and he brings it to his guests, the meat, the cakes, and curds. Think of something like yogurt or cottage cheese and milk and sets it all before them to enjoy, standing nearby to wait on them while they eat. Again, we don't know for sure if Abraham has worked out the identity of his visitors, but the trouble he goes to for this meal, not to mention that he's running around this 100-year-old man in the intense heat, all these things seem to indicate he has a pretty good idea of who they are. And whether he knew who they were or not, they're about to reveal themselves to Abraham. And so we see God's intimate revelation to Abraham. God's intimate revelation to Abraham, verses 9 through 15. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. So if there's any doubt in his mind up to this point, this has been completely erased when the most prominent of the visitors looks up from the meal they're enjoying and asks, where is Sarah, your wife? That's an interesting question, given the fact these men haven't met or seen Sarah yet, nor have they seen Abraham before. And not only do they know he's married and that his wife is still living, they know his wife's name, and not just that, they know her new name, the name given to her by God, and probably which she's only been using for a few weeks or so. Therefore, most likely this question confirms the identity of these strangers to Abraham. And from this point in the story, we get this interesting dialogue, very similar in some ways to the one uh, that you saw last week in Genesis 17, which Frank brought to you. And if you remember from chapter 17, we saw how up until that point in the story of uh, Abraham's life, God had indeed promised him an heir on a number of occasions, but there was never the specific statement that Sarah would give birth to a son even though that would seem to be the obvious implication of the promise. We finally get that statement in chapter 17, but when the statement was given, only Abraham was present. And when Abraham first heard it in chapter 17, his response was to break out into laughter, partly in surprise, partially in joy, partially in bewilderment, partially, no doubt, as a lack of faith, as he struggled to understand how the fulfillment of the promise could take place given his age and the age of his wife. Nevertheless, God assures him that things would happen in just the way that he said they would, and he leaves Abraham to carry out this newly covenant, uh, instituted covenant ritual of circumcision. And now we're here, right on the events of chapter 17, right on the heels of those events, and these three visitors one of whom Abraham now knows is the Lord, have revealed again this same specific promise that God is going to bless Sarah with a child. 
However, this time it's not just Abraham who's present to hear the promise. Sarah is there as well. Although, as the text says, she's hidden from view. She's behind Abraham and the visitors back inside the tent. And now it's her turn to laugh, which she does. But quietly, it says to herself, wondering, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Meaning, I think, shall I have the pleasure of a child? Now, it seems to me that judging from the way Sarah reacts here, that she's as shocked and bewildered and doubtful as Abraham was when he first heard this statement back in chapter 17. And you have to wonder, did Abraham share that specific promise, that particular revelation with Sarah? I mean, maybe he heard that from the Lord and looked at his wife whom he loved and who had waited all her life, and she's now in her 90s, no children yet. Perhaps he looked at her and just felt he wasn't going to tell her just yet. Perhaps he looked at his wife, who'd already gone through menopause, who'd been hearing this promise of descendants for over 20 years now, and still had nothing to show for it. Perhaps he looked at her and decided he wouldn't get her hopes up just yet, only to have to wait for some other unknown period of time for the Lord to work. I don't know. However, her reaction of shock and disbelief seems to come across as a bit too strong if he'd already told her about this promise. Whatever the case, there's a strong reaction here on Sarah's part. And moreover, the immediate response from the Lord is equally as strong. And at the same time serves as another indicator of the divine identity of these visitors. Sarah's laughter had not only been to herself, as the text clearly says in verse 12, but it also taken place when she was hidden from view. And yet the Lord is fully aware of everything she's saying and thinking, and he calls her out on it. And he asks the rhetorical question, is anything too hard for the Lord? After which he reaffirms what he's already said, that Sarah will have a son within a year. And just as it may have been with Abraham, it's very possible that Sarah didn't immediately understand who these visitors were when they first arrived, especially as she hadn't been interacting with them up to this point in the story. But now she has to come to the same realization that Abraham has, that this is the Lord standing among them. And when she does, she's justifiably frightened, perhaps horrified, that she just laughed at the Lord. And then, in sort of typical human fashion, she compounds her problem by following up her disrespectful behavior with a complete lie, claiming she never laughed. Of course, God knows better than that and calls her out on it again, and yet doesn't seem to be too bothered by what we see in his immediate reaction. Certainly, he would have been completely justified in doing more than correcting her. But instead, he treats her very graciously, making it evident yet again that his promises and his faithfulness to this fragile couple are not grounded in their personal worthiness. It's not grounded in, even in their personal commitment to him, but it's grounded upon something far more certain than that. God's promises are grounded upon God's own character and God's own person. As we think about the importance of these verses, 
for God's people. Our first stop, as usual, needs to be the people of God in the past, those who lived with Moses in the wilderness. And as Moses wrote this, so to speak, these Genesis accounts under the inspiration of the Spirit, the people there with him would have been the first to have received them and heard them. And the significance of these verses for them is one that we've seen before. Surely these descriptions of God's faithfulness, in spite of the continued human frailty and, and just wishy-washiness of their ancestors, I, I think it has to be pretty reassuring to them as they had exhibited the very same traits, the very same responses to God over their years of wandering in the wilderness. They had all the same fears, all the same doubts. They had a lack of faith. They were just as wishy-washy. They struggled with unbelief. And yet they see that God has not given up on Abraham and Sarah, and he's not going to give up on them either. Furthermore, they would have seen that, the uh, again, the confirmation that it's the descendants of Sarah, in this case Isaac, and those following in his line, that be the recipients of God's covenant blessings and promises. And that's who they were. They're the descendants of Isaac. So these things would have helped them to have courage and remain faithful. They perhaps added some steel to their backbones as the time came for them to trust God and enter the promised land which lay before them and which they're going to claim as their inheritance, the story of which is recorded in the book of Joshua. But for you and me, the example of God's faithfulness to his promises should also be a comforting reality, just as much as it was for them. Surely, if we're honest about our own hearts, we would have to say that our own record of responding to God, at a minimum, is just as spotty, just as inconsistent, just as filled with fear, doubt, unbelief as that of Abraham and Sarah. And the pattern that we've seen in them, one moment trusting God, the next moment seeming uh, incapable of being able to trust God, that pattern just can't be unfamiliar to any Christian. And will God be less patient with us than he was with them? Is his love towards his people, towards the children of Abraham today, which according to Romans 4 and Galatians 3 includes us, is that love any less committed? Surely not. Moreover, think again about this situation that faced Abraham and Sarah. On one hand, the promise of a child, and on the other hand, a human situation that would seem to make the fulfillment of that promise impossible. Abraham's a hundred years old. His wife is past menopause and, humanly speaking, shouldn't be able to have a child. How is this going to work out? How is this going to happen? And God's response is, is anything too hard for the Lord? See, the problem here is one of perspective. Looking at themselves, Abraham and Sarah could do nothing but think, this ain't happening. It can't happen. But to look only to themselves is the wrong thing to do. It leaves out the most important part of the equation, which is God. The determining factor as to whether anything's going to be accomplished or not is not them, it's God. And the question is not, is this too hard for Abraham and Sarah? Because the answer to that's obvious. The question is, is this too hard for God? Now hopefully that sounds somewhat 
familiar to you. There's no way that Sarah could give birth apart from God's power. That's precisely the situation that thousands of years later faced Zechariah and Elizabeth, which we read about in our responsive reading this morning. God sends an angel to tell him about the coming birth of John the Baptist. We read that in Luke 1. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. People reading that, that should, hey, we've read this before. And the angel answered him, I love this. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. My counsel to you is if you ever hear those words, hit the deck. Okay, it's face plant, all doubt, beg for mercy. You know, it's... It's not the time for debate and negotiating. And it's, it's one of the most powerful uh, verses in the Bible. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be uh, fulfilled in their time. And immediately following that passage in Luke 1, we read about the impossible happening to Mary, mother of Jesus. Her response to Gabriel's announcement is found later in Luke 1. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? He tells her that you're uh, going to have a, a baby and he's going to be the Messiah. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. You need to hear the echoes of Genesis 18 in Luke chapter 1. And Elizabeth responds to the news of her unexpected pregnancy with quietness and joy. Mary responds to the news of her unexpected pregnancy with singing. And Sarah responds to the news of her unexpected pregnancy with laughter. We have a number of pregnant women in the church, more than you think. And I'm just wondering how many responded with laughter. You know, I think that Sarah didn't get in any more trouble with the Lord in this passage because laughter just might have been the most appropriate response. It just might have been the most appropriate response. All of us, at one time or another, have experienced the strange physiological reaction of zygomatic stimulation and subsequent larynx strain. This strain upsets the respiratory system, results in deep, noisy gas. The mouth opens and closes as lungs struggle for oxygen. The struggle for oxygen causes the face to turn various shades of red, and strange, unique noises emerge from deep within. What is this strange physiological reaction? It's laughter. 
zygomatic stimulation. You like that? I have no idea what that is, but I thought it sounded really cool. We normally associate laughter with humor, but gelatology is the study of laughter. I want that job. <laughs> gelatology suggests there's a much more common trigger for laughter, and it's called the incongruity theory. This is true, I'm not making this up. Incongruity theory. It suggests that laughter arises when logic and familiarity are replaced by things that don't normally go together, when we expect one outcome and another happens. Generally speaking, our minds and bodies anticipate what's going to happen, how it's going to end based on logical thought and emotion and our past experiences. And when circumstances go in some unexpected direction, our thoughts and emotions have to suddenly switch gears and laughter emerges out of the tension between what we expect and what actually happens. Now, as I thought about this incongruity theory of laughter, I wonder if it might shed some light on the nature of faith, particularly as it relates to Sarah and her laughter at God's promise of children here in Genesis 18. I've always been amazed that the letter of Hebrews counts Sarah among the faithful in the hall of faith. Sarah, we're told, is one of the faithful witnesses because Hebrews 11, verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Yet many commentators, and, and perhaps most of us, see Sarah's laughter at this announcement as a lack of faith. Perhaps we see it as a lack of faith because we have difficulty believing that faith can be found in the gap between what we expect and what actually happens. Or that we believe that faith never doubts or never questions or never struggles with the seeming incongruities of life. And I'll concede that Sarah's laughter indicates some level of disbelief. And frankly, who can blame her? Who wouldn't laugh at the promise of a child to someone barren long past their childbearing years? In fact, I think if we asked most of the women in that situation and told them this same news, laughter's probably not the response that we're going to get. Might have something to do with our mental state, but. But I think Sarah's laughter contains a glimmer of faith. Faith that's found in the incongruity in holding together belief and disbelief in the face of unexpected circumstances and situations. And God's promise to Abraham and Sarah that they would indeed have a child from whom God would make a great nation seems too good to be true. God tells them one thing. Sarah's experience tells her another. Her age made it physically impossible to bear children. And so Sarah laughed when God came calling that day. And she laughs out loud. And I believe her laughter is filled with detention stemming from disbelief and incredulity and doubt and that tiny glimmer of hope beyond hope that what God was saying, despite all she had experienced to the contrary, was in fact the truth. Sarah's story helps us to see faith can be born when one finds themselves caught in the tension between belief and unbelief. Long before, almost 25 years earlier, when the Lord first made this promise to Abraham, 
The text tells us that Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness. It's quoted a number of times in the New Testament. But 25 years have transpired since this initial declaration of faith. 25 years of barrenness. 25 years of futile attempts to have children in other ways. 25 years of God seeming silent on not making good on what he promised. And so when you look at what it meant for Abraham and Sarah to believe God, it meant taking a journey of following God in faith, even if God's not clearly showing them the way. And Abraham and Sarah believed God, but that belief was not absolute certainty. It's a journey filled with tension between what was expected and what actually happens. And Sarah's laughter reveals a faith that fills the gap between what we expect and what actually comes to be. And it demonstrates a faith that enables us to place our trust in a faithful God even when we don't always see his faithfulness. Sarah's story shows us the laughter of faith is a laughter of incongruity. What we expect and what actually happens don't always line up. It creates a tension between belief and unbelief. And sometimes it moves us, us to laughter. And sometimes it moves us to faith. And sometimes it does both. But ultimately, like Sarah and Abraham, real faith casts us wholeheartedly upon a God who is free to act and to do as God wants in God's time, in God's way. Faith is the ability to answer yes to the God for whom nothing is impossible, even when everything in our lives tells us the answer is no. Most of us have laughed at the impossible. We've laughed to dismiss the impossible. We've laughed at things that don't make sense. We've laughed when the unexpected shows up. But when the unexpected means that the promise is made good by the God who can do the impossible, then we will know what good news really is. And we'll have a better understanding. We will know more surely the good news of the impossible life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we'll know the good news of salvation by grace alone, since that too is something that's impossible for us to do on our own. Because from Genesis to Luke to Revelation, it's all of grace from beginning to end. And it's good to know that the God of the impossible allows you to laugh. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close. Oh, Lord, our Lord, you show so much grace to Abraham, and our hospitality falls so far short of Abraham's. And you showed even more grace to Sarah, and we so much want you to show the same grace to us. We doubt just as much as Sarah did. We fear just as much as Sarah did. And sometimes we laugh for all the wrong reasons. But Lord, here you are again showing grace to the undeserving, to your people, to us. Lord, thank you that no one is beyond your grace. Thank you that we are not beyond your grace. Thank you that the blood of Jesus covers our sins. For we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.